Hey, 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 y'all. This is your girl, Tony. Welcome to my reading of The Law of Success. We're on lesson number seven, which is enthusiasm. We're on part number two, because the first part you heard some of that, of course. Hopefully you listen to the whole thing. So like I said, this is part number two of the um, lesson number seven of enthusiasm. Again, this is Tony Atta Clay. I call myself Tony. That is my nickname. But welcome, y'all. Like I said, definitely hope y'all enjoyed this. Um, this part of the lesson I'll be reading to y'all. Um, and I'll just to let you Oh, also, there will be some information in the um, links in the um, in the in the notes. I guess I put it that way in the notes, in the notes, in the notes. <laughs> um, so, like I said, definitely make sure that y'all check them out. And like I said, definitely. Like I said, welcome to this podcast. This is the Social Worker Coach Podcast. And yes, you will see this being read um, live on YouTube as well. So like I said, definitely make sure, like I said, there'll be links in my in the description of the podcast of this episode that can take you to my YouTube. So you can go ahead and subscribe there too. And for those who are on YouTube, make sure that you get your butt on over to, um, to Spotify or um, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcast at, and subscribe to my podcast as well. Um, and like I said, let's go ahead and get into this. Like I said, again, this is lesson number seven on enthusiasm. Picking up where I left off, y'all. <clears throat> the criminal was brought to the guillotine and his head was placed under the knife after he had been blindfolded. A heavy, sharp edge plank was then dropped on his neck, producing a shock to that of a sharp edge knife. Mm, that sounds horrible. Warm water was then gently poured on his neck and allowed to trickle slowly down his spine to imitate the flow of warm blood. In seven minutes, the doctor pronounced the man dead. Hmm. His imagination through the principle of suggestion had actually turned the sharp edge plank into a guillotine blade and stopped his heart from beating. In the little town where I was raised, there was an old lady who constantly complained that she feared death from cancer. During her childhood, <clears throat> she had seen a woman who had cancer and the sight was so un so impressed Oh, and the sight had so impressed itself upon her mind that she began to look for symptoms of cancer in her own body. She was sure that every little ache and pain was the beginning of her long look for cancer symptoms. I have seen her place her hand on her breast and have heard her exclaim, Oh, I'm sure I have breast cancer growing here. I can feel it. When complaining of this imaginary disease, she always placed her hand on her left breast, which she believed the cancer was attacking her. For more than 20 years, she kept this up. A few weeks ago, she died with cancer in her, on her left breast. If suggestion will actually turn the edge of a plank into a guillotine blade and transform healthy body cells into parasites out of which cancer will develop, can you imagine what it will do in destroying disease germs if properly directed? Hmm. Very interesting. Suggestion is the law through which mental healers work what appear to be miracles. I have personally witnessed the removal of parasitical growths known as warts <clears throat> through the aid of suggestion within 48 hours. Wow. You, the, the reader of this lesson, can be sent to bed with imaginary sickness of the worst sort in two hours, time or less, through the use of suggestion. If you should start down the street and three or four people in whom you had confidence should meet you and each exclaim that you look ill, you would be ready for a doctor. This brings to mind an experience that I had with a life insurance salesman. I had made application for a policy, but was undecided as to whether I should take ten or twenty thousand. Meanwhile, the agent had sent me to the life insurance company's doctor to be examined. The following day, I was called back for another examination. The second time, the examination was more searching, and the doctor carried a worried look on his face. 
The third day I was called back again, and this time two consulting physicians there were there to look over me. They gave me the most searching examination I ever received or heard of. The next day the agent called and addressed me as follows. I do not wish to alarm you, but the doctors who examine you do not agree on your analysis. You have not yet decided whether you would take the ten or $20,000 worth of life insurance, and I do not think it fair for me to give you a report on your medical examination until you make this decision. Because if you did, because if I did, you might feel that I was urging you to take the larger amount. Then I spoke up, then I spoke up and said, well, I have already decided to take the full amount, true enough. I had decided to take the $20,000 policy. <clears throat> I decided the moment the agent plant, planted the suggestion in my mind that perhaps I had some constitutional weakness that would make it hard for me to get as much insurance as I wanted. Very well said the agent. Now that you have decided, I feel it my duty to tell you that two of the doctors believe you have the you have the tubercular germ in your system, while the other two disagree. The trick had been turned. Clever suggestion had pushed me over the fence of indecision, and we were all satisfied. Where does, enthousi <clears throat> Where does enthusiasm come in, do you ask? Never mind. It came in all right. But if you wish to know who brought it, you will have to ask the life insurance, the life insurance agent and his four medical accomplices, <laughs> which it sounds like they work together. For I'm sure they must have a hearty laugh at my expense, I'm sure. But the trick was all right. I needed the insurance anyway. Of course, if you happen to be a life insurance agent, you will not grab this idea and work it out on the next prospective client who is slow in making up his mind about the policy. Of course you will not. <laughs> a few months ago, I received one of the most effective pieces of advertising I ever saw. It was a neat little book in which a clever automobile insurance salesman had reprinted press dispatches that he had gathered from all over the country in which it had shown that 65 automobiles had been stolen in a single day. Wow. On the back of the page of the book was this highly suggestive statement. Your car must be the next one to go. Is it insured? At the bottom of the page was the salesman's name and address. Also his telephone number. Before I had finished reading, the first two pages of the book, I called the salesman on the telephone and made inquiry about rates. He came over to see me and you know the remainder of the story. <laughs> Go back now to the two letters and let us analyze the second one, which brought the desired responses, replies from all whom it was sent. Study carefully the first paragraph and you will observe that it asks a question which can be answered in but one way. Compare this opening paragraph with that of the first letter by asking yourself which of the two would have impressed you most favorably. This paragraph is worded as it was, as it is for a twofold purpose. First, it is intended to serve the purpose of, an, of neutralizing the mind of the reader so he will read the remainder of the letter in an open mind attitude. And second, it asks a question which can be answered in one but one way for the purpose of committing the reader to a viewpoint which harmonizes with the nature of the service that he is to be requested to render in subsequent paragraphs of the letter. In the second lesson of this course, you observe that Andrew Carnegie refused to answer my question. Let me get some water, y'all.
when I asked him to what he attributed his success until he had asked me to define the word success. He did this to avoid misunderstanding. The first paragraph of the letter we are analyzing is so worded that it states the object of the letter and at the same time practically forces the reader to accept that object as being sound and reasonable. Any person who would answer this, the question asked in this paragraph of the letter under discussion in the negative will by the same answer convict himself on the charge of selfishness and no man wants to face himself with a guilty conscience on such a charge. Just as the farmer first plows his ground, then fertilizes it and perhaps harrows it and prepares it to receive the seed in order that he may be sure of a crop, so does this paragraph fertilize the mind of the reader and prepare for the seed which, it, which is to be placed there through the subtle, subtle suggestion that the paragraph contains. Study carefully the second paragraph of the letter and you will observe that it carries a statement of fact which the reader can neither question nor deny. It proves him with no reason for argument because it is obviously based upon a sound fundamental. It takes him the second step of a psychological journey that leads straight toward a comp store compliant. It takes him the second step of a psychological journey that leads straight towards compliance <clears throat> with the request that is carefully clothed and covered up in the third paragraph of the letter. But you will notice that the third paragraph begins by paying the reader a nice little compliment that was not designed to make him angry. Therefore, if you will write me of your view, views as to the most essential points to be borne in mind by those who are offering personal services for sale, etc. Study the wording of the sentence together with the setting in which it has been placed and you will observe that it hardly hardly appears to be a request at all and certainly there is nothing about it to suggest that the writer of the letter is requesting a favor for his personal benefit at most it can be construed merely as a request for a favor for others now study the closing paragraph and notice how tactfully concealed is the suggestion that if the reader should refuse the request he is placing himself in the awkward position of one who does not care enough about those who care less fortunate about those who are less fortunate than himself to spend a two cent stamp and a few minutes of time for their benefit. From start to finish, the letter conveys its strongest impressions by mere suggestion. Yet this, this suggestion is so carefully covered that it is not obvious except upon careful analysis of the entire letter. The whole construction of the letter is such that if the reader lays it aside without complying with the request, it makes him, it makes he will have to reckon with his own conscience. This effect is intensified by the last sentence of the last paragraph and especially by the last 13 words of that sentence. Quote, who will read your message, believe in it, and be guided by it. Quote. This letter brings the reader up with the bang and turns his own conscience into an ally of the writer. It corners him just as a hunter might corner a rabbit by driving it into a carefully prepared net. The best evidence that this analysis is correct is the fact that the letter brought replies from every person to whom it was sent, despite the fact that every one of these men was a type that we speak of as being a man of, of affairs, the type that is generally supposed to be too busy to answer a letter of this nature. Hmm. 
Not only did that letter bring it, the, the desired replies, but the men to whom it was sent replied in person. Oh, wow. With the exception of the late Theodore Roosevelt, who replied under the signature of a secretary. John Wanamaker and Frank A. Vanderlip wrote two of the finest letters I have ever read. Even a masterpiece, I mean, each a masterpiece that might well have adorned the pages of a more dignified volume than that volume than the one for which the letters were requested. Andrew Carnegie also wrote a letter that was well worth consideration by all who have personal services for sale. William Jennings Bryan wrote a final a fine letter, as did also the late Lord Northcliffe. None of these men wrote merely to please me, for I was unknown to all of them, with the exception of four. They did not write to me to please me. They wrote to please themselves and to render a worthy service. Perhaps the wording of the letter has something to do with this, but as to that, I make no point other than to state that all of these men whom I have mentioned and most others of their type are generally the most willing men to render service for others when they are properly approached. The nugget right there, y'all. I wish to take advantage of this appropriate opportunity to state that all of the really big men whom I had the pleasure of knowing have been the most willing and courteous men of my acquaintance when it came to rendering service that was a benefit to others. Perhaps this was one reason why they were really big men. The human, the human mind is a marvelous piece of machinery. One of its outstanding characteristics is noticing the fact that all impressions, all impressions which reach it, either through outside suggestion or auto-suggestion, are recorded together in groups, in groups which harmonize in nature. The negative impressions are stored away and all in one portion of the brain, while the positive Excuse me, y'all. Yawning. Lord have mercy. It's early morning, actually. <laughs> While the positive impressions are stored in another portion. I hope I don't make that yawn contagious for y'all. <laughs> um, when one of these impressions or past experiences is called into conscious mind through the principle of memory, there is a tendency to recall with it all others of a similar nature, just as the raising of one link of the chain brings up another link with it. For example, anything that causes a feeling of doubt to arise in a person's mind is sufficient to call forth all the all his experiences, which cause him to become doubtful. If a man is asked by a stranger to cash a check, immediately he, he remembers having cashed checks that were not good or having heard of others who did so. Through the law of association, all similar emotions, experiences, and sense impressions have reached the mind or filled or filed away together, so that the recalling of one has a tendency to bring back memories of all others. To arouse a feeling of distrust in a person's mind has a tendency to bring the surface of every doubt building experience that person ever had. For this reason, successful salesmen, salesmen endeavor to keep away from the discussion of subjects that may arouse the buyer's chain of doubt and impressions, which he has stored away by reasons of previous experiences. The successful salesman quickly, quickly learns that <clears throat> knocking a competitor or a competing article may result in bringing to the buyer's mind the certain negative emotions growing out of previous experiences, which may make it impossible for the salesman to neutralize the buyer's mind. This principle applies to and controls every sense impression that is lodged in the human mind. Take the feeling of fear, for example. 
the moment we the moment we permit a single emotion that is related to fear to reach the conscious mind, it calls with it all of its unsavory relations. A feeling of courage cannot claim the attention of the conscious mind while a feeling of fear is there. Hmm. One or the other must dominate. They make poor roommates because they do not harmonize in nature. Like attracts like. Every thought held in conscious mind has a tendency to draw to it other thoughts of a similar nature. You see, therefore, that these feelings, thoughts, and emotions growing out of past experiences, which claim the attention of the conscious mind, are backed by a regular army of supporting soldiers of a similar nature that stand ready to aid them in their work. Deliberately placed in your own mind through the principle of auto-suggestion, the ambition to succeed through the aid of a definite chief aim and notice how quickly all of your latent and undeveloped ability in the nature of past experiences will become stimulated and aroused to action on your, in your behalf. Plant in the boy's mind through the principle of suggestion, the ambition to become a successful lawyer, a doctor, or engineer, a businessman, or financier, <laughs> and you will plant that suggestion deeply enough and keep it there by repetition. It will, it will begin to move that boy toward the achievement of the object of that ambition. That is true. You kids, you can do that way all the time. I'm looking to see how many pages I got left, y'all. That's all. That's all. That's all. That's all. Or how many. Okay. <clears throat> we have quite a bit, so that's okay. If you will plant a suggestion deeply, mix it generously with enthusiasm, for enthusiasm is the fertilizer that will ensure its rapid growth as well as its permanency. When the right kind-hearted old, old gentleman planted in my mind the suggestion that I was a bright boy and that I could make my mark in the world if I would educate myself, it was not so much what he said as it was the way in which he said it that made a deep and lasting impression on my mind. It was the way in which he gripped my shoulders and the look of confidence in his eyes that drove his suggestion so deeply into my conscious mind that it never gave me any peace until I commenced taking steps that lead to the fulfillment of the suggestion. This is a point that I would stress with all the power at my command. It is not so much what you say as it is the tone and the manner in which you say it that makes a lasting impression. That's always the case. It naturally follows, therefore, the, that sincerity of purpose, honesty and earnestness must be placed back of all that one says if one would make a lasting and favorable impression. Whatever you successfully sell to others, you must first sell to yourself. Not long ago, <clears throat> not long ago, I was approached by an agent of the government of Mexico who sought my services as a writer of propaganda for the administration in charge at that time. His approach about as follows, whereas senior was a reputation as an exponent of the golden rule philosophy, and whereas senior is known throughout the United States as an independent who is not allied with any political faction. Now, therefore, would Senior be gracious enough to come to Mexico, study the economic and political affairs of that country, then return to the, to, the, to the United States and write a series of articles to appear in the newspapers, recommending to the people of the America the immediate recognition of Mexico by the government of the United States, etc. For this service, I was offered more money than I shall perhaps even possess during my entire life. But I refuse the commission, and for that reason, that will fail to impress anyone except those who understand the principle which makes it necessary for all who would influence others 
to remain on good terms with their own conscience. I could not write convincingly of Mexico's cause for the reason that I did not believe in that cause. Therefore, I could not have mixed sufficient enthusiasm with my writing to have made it effective, even though I had been willing to prostitute my talent and dip my pen into that ink that I knew to be muddy. I will not endeavor further to explain my philosophy on this incident for the reason that those who are far enough advanced in the study of auto-suggestion <clears throat> would not need further explanation, but those who are not far enough advanced would need, would not, and could not understand. No man can afford to express through words or actions that which is not in harmony with his own belief. If he does so, he must pay by the loss of his ability to influence others. Please read aloud the foregoing paragraph. It is worth emphasizing by repetition for lack of observation of the principle upon which it is based constitutes the rocks and reefs upon which many a man's definite chief aim dashes itself to pieces. I do not believe that I can afford to try to deceive anyone about anything, but I know that I can afford to try to deceive myself. To do so will destroy the power of my pen and render my words ineffective. It is only when I write with the fire of enthusiasm burning in my heart that my word that my writing impresses others favorably. And it is only when I speak from a heart that is bursting with belief in my message that I can move my audience to accept that message. I would also have you read aloud the foregoing paragraph. Yes, I would have you commit to committed to memory. Even more than this, I would have you write it out and place it where it may serve as a daily reminder of a principle, nay, a law as immutable as the law of gravitation, without which you can never become a power in your chosen life work. There have been times, and many of them, when it appeared that if I stood by this principle, it would mean starvation. There have been times when my closest friends and business advisors have strongly urged me to shave my philosophy for the sake of gaining a needed advantage here and there, but somehow I have managed to cling to it. Mainly, I impose for the reason that I have preferred peace and harmony in my own heart to the material gain that I might have had to be had by a forced compromise with my conscience. Strange as it may seem, my deliberations and conclusions on this subject of refusing to strangle my own conscience have seldom been based upon what is commonly called honesty. That which I have done in the matter of refraining from writing or speaking anything that I did not believe has been solely a question of honor between my conscience and myself. And it always is, y'all. I have tried to express that which my heart dictated because I have aimed to give my words flesh. It might be said that my motive was based more upon self-interest than it was a desire to be fair with others. Although I have never desired to be unfair with others as far as I'm able to analyze myself. No man can become a master salesman if he compromises his falsehood. Murder will come out. And even though no one catches him red-handed in expressing that which he does not believe, his words will fail in the accomplishment of their purpose because he cannot give them flesh if they do not come from his heart. And if they are not mixed with genuine, unadulterated enthusiasm. I would also have you read aloud the foregoing paragraph, for it embraces a great law that you must understand and apply before you can become a person of influence in any undertaking. In making these requests for the sake of emphasis, 
I am not trying to take undue liberties with you. I'm giving you full credit for being an adult, a thinker, an intelligent person. Yet I know how likely you are to skip over these vital laws without being sufficiently impressed by them to make them a part of your own workday philosophy. I know your weakness because I know my own. It has required the better part of 20 year, five years of ups and downs, mostly downs, to impress these basic truths upon my mind so that they influence me. I have tried both them and their opposites. Therefore, I can speak, not as one who merely believes in their soundness, but as one who knows. And what do I mean by these truths? So that you cannot possibly misunderstand my meaning. And so that these words of warning cannot possibly convey an abstract meaning. I will state that by these truths, I mean this. I cannot afford to suggest to another person by word of mouth, about an act of yours, that which you, you do not believe. Surely that is plain enough. And the reason you, you cannot afford to do so is this. If you compromise your own conscience, it will not be long before you will have no conscience. For your conscience will fail to guide you, just as an alarm clock will fail to awaken you if you do not heed it. Surely this is plain enough also. And how do I happen to be an authority on this vital subject, you, do you ask? I'm a, I am an authority because I have experimented with this principle until I know how it works. But you may ask, how do I know uh-oh, that you are telling the truth? The answer is that you will only know by experimenting for yourself and by observing others who faithfully apply this principle and those who do not apply it. If my, ev- if my evidence needs backing, then consult any man whom you know to be a person who has tried to get by without observing this principle. And if he will not or cannot give you the truth, you cannot get it. Nevertheless, by analyzing the man, there is but one thing in this world that gives a real man enduring power. I mean, gives a man real and enduring power, and that is his character. Reputation, bear in mind, is not character. Reputation is that which people are believed to be. Character is that which people are. If you would be a person of great influence than a, be a person of real character. Character is the philosopher's lodestone through which all who have it may turn the base metals of their life into pure gold. Without character, you have nothing. You are nothing. You cannot be nothing. You can be nothing except a pile of flesh and bone and hair worth perhaps $25. Character is something that you cannot beg or steal or buy. You can only you can get it only by building it, and you can build it in your by your own thoughts and deeds, and in no other way. Through the aid of auto suggestion, any person can build a sound character, no matter what his past has been. As a fitting close for this lesson, I wish to emphasize the fact that all who have character have enthusiasm and personality sufficient to to draw them others who have character. You will now be instructed as to how you shall proceed in developing enthusiasm. In the, event that you, in the event that you do not already possess this rare quality. The instructions will be simple, but you will be unfortunate if you discount their value on, the, on, that, on that account. First, complete the remaining lesson of this course because other important, instructors are, other important instructions which are to be coordinated with this one will be found in subsequent lessons. Two, if you have not already done so, write out your definite chief aim in clear, simple language and follow this by writing out the plan through which you intend to transform your aim into reality. Third, 
read over the description of your definite chief aim each night just before return as you read see yourself in imagination in full possession of the object of your aim i need to do that actually do this uh, with full faith in your ability to transform your definite aim into, into reality read aloud with all the enthusiasm at your command emphasizing every word repeat this reading until the small voice within tells you that your purpose will be realized Sometimes you will feel effects of this voice from within the first time you read your definite chief aim, while at other times you will have to read it a dozen or 50 times before the assurance comes, but do not stop until you feel it. If you prefer to do so, you may read your definite chief aim as a prayer. Hmm. The remainder of this lesson is for the person who has not yet learned the power of faith. Um, I struggle with that, so this is me. And who knows, I'm sure there's others out there as well. And who knows little or nothing of the principle of auto-suggestion. One of the greatest powers for good upon the face of the earth is faith. faith. To this marvelous power may be traced miracles of the most astounding nature. It offers peace on earth to all who embrace it. Faith involves a principle that is so far-reaching in its effect that no man can say what are its limitations or if it has limitations. Right into, this, this, right into the description of your definite chief aim, a statement of the qualities that you intend to develop in yourself and the station in life that you intend to attain and have faith as you read the description each night, that you can transform this purpose into reality. Excuse me, y'all. had another yawn. <laughs> I should have took my butt to bed early is what I should have done. Um, to be successful, you must be a person of action. Merely to know is not sufficient. It is necessary to both know and do. Yes. Enthusiasm is the mainspring of the mind, which urges one to put knowledge into action. Billy Sunday is the most successful evangelist this country has ever known. For the purpose of studying his technique and checking up on his psychological methods, the author of this course went through three campaigns with Reverend Sunday. His success is based largely upon one word, enthusiasm. By making effective use of the law of suggestion, Billy Sunday conveys his own spirit of enthusiasm to the man of his followers, and they become influenced by it. He sells his sermons by the use of exactly the same sort of strategy employed by many master salesmen. Enthusiasm is, an, is as essential to a salesman as water is to a duck. Trying to see where I'm at, y'all. Okay. Uh, this is I won't be able to read this whole the rest of this because it's about um how many pages is that? 13, 14 pages left. So I'll read as much as I can before I have to get to work, y'all. So let's keep that in mind. Um all successful sales managers understand the psychology of enthusiasm and make and make use of it in various ways as a practical means of helping their men produce more sales. Practically, all sales organizations have get-together meetings at stated times. Let me get some water, y'all. Where am I at? For the purpose of revitalizing the mind of all members of the sales force and injecting the spirit of enthusiasm, which can be best in, done in mass, through group psychology, sales meetings might properly be, properly be called revival meetings because their purpose is to revive 
interest and arouse enthusiasm, which will enable the salesman to take up the flight, the fight with renewed ambition and energy. During his administration as sales manager of the National Cash Register Company, Hugh Chalmers, who later became famous in the motor car industry, faced the most embarrassing situation, which threatened to wipe out his position, as well as that of thousands of salesmen under his direction. The company was in financial difficulty. Excuse me. This fact had become known to the salesmen in the field, and the effect of it was to cause them to lose their enthusiasm. Sales began to dwindle until finally the conditions became so alarming that a general meeting of a sales organization was called to be held at the company's plant in Dayton, Ohio. Salesmen recalled from called in from all over the country. Mr. Chalmers presided over the meeting. He began by calling on several of his best salesmen to get on their feet and tell what was wrong out in the field. Their orders had fallen off. One by one, they got up as called, and each man had a most terrible tale of grief to unfold. Business conditions were bad, money was scarce, people were holding off buying until after the presidential election, etc. As the fifth man began to enumerate the difficulties which kept him from making his usual quota of sales, Mr. Charmos jumped on top of the table and held, held up his hands in silence and said, stop. In order for this convention to come to a close for 10 minutes while I get my shoes shined. So y'all, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> That's crazy, but I'm going to stop there. So like I said, definitely thank y'all. Trying to get my pencil, y'all, to mark the spot so I won't lose my spot. Trying to get my pen, my pencil. Okay. Get my shoe shine. That's where I stopped at. Lord. Now, who in the world was stopping me to get some shoe shine? That's crazy. <laughs> crazy. But like I said, y'all, this is part number two um, of the lesson number seven on enthusiasm from the book. Law of Success by Napoleon Hill. Like I said, I'm going to read this whole, the rest of this whole book. And most of these um, lessons are going to be in three parts because they're so long. So like I said, the uh, the, the remaining um, about 10, 15 pages of this, um, lesson number seven will, will, will be read in the next podcast episode. So again, of course, make sure that y'all are following this podcast. And for those who are watching on YouTube and those on the podcast, make sure that y'all are subscribing to my channel. And of course, staying abreast on whenever I, of course, post videos on this YouTube channel. And of course, post um, and staying abreast when I also post um, or upload episodes to the podcast. So like I said, definitely, y'all, I appreciate y'all for being here. This is Tonetta Clay, your social worker coach. And I want to make a black girl who reads. So I want to say thank y'all. Like I said, again, make sure that y'all check out the links in the description on YouTube and in the show notes on same thing on the podcast to check out the links that I posted in there. Of course, you'll find my other social media channels. So, so y'all can go in, of course, subscribe and follow me and that kind of thing, too, to stay in my world if you, if you like. And if I speak to you, I guess I put it that way as well. But you'll also find some nice, cute journals that I made and stuff like that that you can, of course, purchase as well. Um, like I said, definitely check it out. And as well as merch, T-shirts and stuff like that, too. So check it out. Like I said, this is your girl, Shadetta, signing off. I want to say thank y'all, the social worker coach. I'll see y'all in the next episode. Peace out.